Hello, everyone, and welcome to the fourth episode of DutchCast, the podcast about anything and everything collegiate. I'm your host, Larkin McKay, and in today's episode, we have with us Dr. Esposito. As those of you who take Latin or Greek know, Dr. Esposito is a teacher in the classics department, and I'm actually in his Latin class this year. Uh, so just to begin, Dr. Esposito, why don't you uh, begin by introducing yourself, giving some personal background, how long you've been a collegiate, uh, your alma mater, et cetera. Sure. So uh, I've been a collegiate... Uh I think this is ninth year. It might be the 10th. I can't remember. Uh, and I um, did my undergrad at Fordham up in the Bronx, and I went to Cornell for grad school. Um, cool. So just diving right in. Um, I know you're sort of like the Aeneid expert in the classics department. Uh, so, and it, it feels like you just, you can pull quotes from anywhere. You kind of, you know it really well. Um, so I guess my question is, why does it interest you so much? And uh, what do you specifically like about the Aeneid compared to other classical literature, or epic poetry? Sure. I mean, I wouldn't say I, I don't like the whole the expert in this or that field. It's actually the reason it's sort of a pet peeve is that it's, it's I think, and I think my colleagues here think, uh, agree that it's part of the problem with the way classics is done now is the idea that you have to go to a specialist in a text or an author um, and we don't buy that. We try to be generalists and to bring together what we know from all the authors that we know to try and figure out when we are teaching two things at once, how they go together. Um, and that can be extra useful if you guys have read them before. Um, so I will bring up the Aeneid a little more in, in Tacitus class, for example. You know, Peter was trying to get at that, but I, I, I you know, I put it off for a minute. But, um, I think that's the way we should be going about things. So I, I wouldn't say I'm the expert. I do know it well. I've read it for a long time. And I think the, the, it, it was the reason I realized I wanted to um, become a Latinist, which really means become a teacher of Latin. Um, and that was in high school. And I, I think the, the thing that distinguishes it for me is that it is beautiful. And the beauty of the verse is something that you can, you can figure out why it is that it's beautiful. So in English, in English, English poetry has this incredible variety and range and flexibility because we have words that are ger Germanic and words that are Latinate, um, and more or less other sources too, of course. But uh, and we have loose syntax. But in Latin, the they have these syntactical limitations, and you can see the poets pushing up against them, and Virgil in particular pushing up against them, wanting to use. Um, you know, different cases in new ways, wanting to use Latin a little bit more like Greek at times. Um, but because they don't have these different sources, these completely disparate sources for their words, you can understand what the poets are doing with their words much more explicitly. So when Virgil takes a word and he reactivates the, um, the etymological, you know, underpinning of the verb or something, um, you can see exactly what he's doing. And I think you can even get a sense of how that might have felt. Um, and I think that's much harder and more remote in English and English poetry. Um, and when he's, he's creating sound effects, I think the same goes for that. So that's the real reason. Yeah, because um, it just, a lot of the, in the Aeneid specifically, the, I noticed most of the book, like the actual pages of the book, the volume is the commentary. And it just, it seems like they're so, I, more than in English, that each line just has so much more meaning to it 
because it's a different language than a line in English. So I guess, do you, do you think that Latin can do more because of that, just because it's, you, I guess, are more constrained, more constrained with limited syntax, so you have to sort of imagine or do more because as a result of it being constrained? Well, there's, there's plenty of difficult and plenty of learned poetry in English. I guess I would say Virgil did this incredible thing where he, he, you can't think of a poet more learned than he, but he also wrote this verse that immediately became popular. And that's an incredible thing. I can't think of a, of a difficult and learned English poet uh, that people go around uh, reciting. Yeah. And we know that this happened quite quickly in the Aeneid. You know, it's scribbled on the walls of Pompeii or, or both ver real verses and parodies of real verses. We know from you know, later poets, they make jokes about you know, how tough it is to be a teacher of Virgil because people are oh, coming up to you on the street and randomly asking you, you know, the equivalent of you know, who was Yoda's uncle's um, nurse, that kind of thing, right? Uh, but transposed to the Aeneid. Um, so that's an amazing thing. And I don't think that could ever be uh, the combination of learning and density and you know, making it instantly memorable and, and to the point that it was even popular. That's an, uh, something I think is unique to Virgil. Yeah. Um, do you have a favorite, a favorite moment in the epic, or do you just can you not decide? No, I, I mean, I have lots of them. I would say the one that it gets mentioned the least is where there's a, um, a helmsman of Aeneas's uh, ship, and the, the gods make a, 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 a dirty deal that um, in return for allowing the, I'm trying not to go into too much detail, right? Yeah. Um, not for in return for allowing the safe passage of the rest of Aeneas's fleet, one man has to die. So uh, they send sleep to get the helmsman to fall asleep and drown. And sleep shows up and in disguise as another human being and says to the helmsman, hey, it would be a great time to sleep now. And the helmsman says, are you nuts? Uh, of course I can't do that. You can't be fall asleep. You can't trust the sea. You can't fall asleep when you're the helmsman. And then so then sleep just conks him on the head and knocks him out and he falls asleep and drowns. So I always found this so outrageous and both you know, wretched in, in its miserable and misery and also just making me so outraged against the injustice of, uh, of the world, in this case understood by the mechanism of the gods, that you know, they bother to do this <laughs> charade as if they had to convince and fool him. And then when he doesn't fall for it, they just overpower him. Um, and but I've very rarely seen that talked about. I read someone recently, I can't remember who it was, who picked out that moment um, and that, <laughs> I thought that was really cool because I've always thought that that was an underrated moment. Yeah. Um, I get, in, in your opinion, why do you think epic poetry is sort of no longer practiced or written as much, or it's just no longer a popular form of literature? Well, there's a million reasons. I mean, wh I mean the, the amazing thing is it seems to have, you know, for the Greeks to some extent, to, to some extent have functioned in the way that pop culture does for us. And that it's a, and that's what I was trying to, grasping for an example, and I went to some Star Wars example. Um, you know, Homer did that for the Greeks. And it tied the Greeks together when there are all these different kinds of Greeks, and it also gave them this common background. Now, of course, the common background of stories is, is much deeper than Homer, and Homer's a particular version and all that, so it's not a perfect comparison. But it did a lot of that work that pop culture and Disney and movies and 
um, I think music to some degree too does for us. So I think that we're never going to have a piece of literature that does that. And the other reason is that you know poetry is in general has no real role in our um, public life and imagination. So um, there are exceptions to this, you know, poetry being read at uh, you know the inaugurations and that sort of thing. So I'm not that's not absolute, but. For the most part, people can't remember anything, and so poetry can't become a part of the way they think about the world because they can't remember lines of poetry. And they don't get stories, phrases that they um, can understand to be held in common by everybody from poetry anymore. So, yeah, I, I guess, I, was it that the, these epic stories were, if you're going to talk about something other than politics or your personal life, like something in pop culture, it's almost one of, if not the only option to sort of talk about something popular, like a story, or were there other smaller aspects of pop culture, like so to say, in ancient Greece and Rome that people would still talk about? No, no, of course there were. I mean, look, there, there were, of course, and you, 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 we have all these authors that tell us, that, you know, there, there were games and there were current events and all that. Um, I think the division you're making between, between talking politics and personal, on the one hand, and personal stuff on the other, and uh, the third hand, however you say that, um, uh, pop culture slash myth or epic, that is a weird distinction to make. That wouldn't have made any sense to the ancients, that a lot of what they're thinking about politics is built into their poetry and their epic poetry. And in fact, an example of this is, you know, Xenophon says that one of the accusations, one of the reasons that Socrates was um, uh, hated by the democracy and eventually brought up uh, for trial by the by um, uh, Athenian Democrats uh, is that he loved to go around quoting a verse from Homer in which a sort of rabble rouser gets smacked around by a noble. <laughs> this is Thersites getting smacked around by Odysseus. So, um, you know, you can see an example there of how, how these stories are woven into their politics. You can go around and the idea is, of course, you can go around and criticize the democracy by referring to this event that everyone would have known about, yeah. um, you know, in this shared fund of stories. So, so I guess it's, it was more of just a common ground that sort of everyone could relate to or at least knew something about? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's just that. I would say that the reason that it's not, you started by asking the reason why it's not, doesn't function <laughs> in the modern world. And I would say that's one reason it doesn't function and, and won't. There won't be a comeback because the, the, these functions are performed by other things. Um, so moving on a little bit to talking about linguistics, mm -hmm. uh, I guess in your opinion, why is the study of Latin or in linguistics in general important? Because people could make the argument that, you know, we've already done a ton of work on these same texts over and over, and we've had tons of authors do their own translations and commentaries on the same works. But why do you think that it's still important to do? Well, I would say that the, there are two things. When we start Latin, you start to study uh, language analytic analytically, you start to develop an understanding of the structure of language. And I think that should be distinguished from reading Latin authors. So I obviously love the Latin authors, and I would love if everybody read them. But that's not quite the same thing as learning a complex system of syntax um, at the, the, the tasks that you undertake when you just start learning the mechanics of Latin. So 
Yeah, I got lost. What was your question again? So I guess for the first part, why is learning, why is learning those mechanics important to sure. language? Yeah, no, I look, I think first of all, it, it just helps understanding either English or, or Romance languages or any language when you can think about language analytically. Um, and that, in, you know, when you learn direct object, indirect object, that kind of thing in English, all you're doing is you're slapping labels onto some parts of a whole that you already understand. So even if you work very zealously at it, you already understand what give me a pencil means. Okay, it doesn't matter that um, uh, me is the indirect object and the pencil is the direct object. If you can learn how to apply those labels correctly, great. If you don't, so what? You understand the whole. But as you well know, uh, that's the opposite is the case in Latin where you have to first understand which one is the indirect object and which one is the direct object and then build up the meaning of the whole build the whole from your understanding of the function of the parts. And I think that's great to, for everybody to learn a system like that. And I think it's accessible. I think you can start from scratch at a fairly late age because um, we're not depending on you know, ability to speak fluently or, or you know, um, venue where you can chat with people. Um, I think it helps with all sorts of other stuff, with science, with programming, um, for straightforward reasons. In, in you know, computer programming, you say syntax all the time when you describe the function of some element that you're using. So that's a separate thing, and then I'll, I guess I'll stop there, because that, I think, is the most widely um, applicable thing. Uh, learning the mechanics of Latin is stimulating and helpful for other things. And then I guess why do you think that for part B, wh why do you think that um, it is important to continue the study of Latin authors and build upon the work that has already been done, like analyzing these works from thousands of years ago? Well, I don't, I actually, I mean, it depends what you mean by build on. I actually don't think it's important. I think it's kind of funny when people in my field who are, who are, you know, and I, I say this with respectfully of them, they, they work incredibly hard on this stuff and they've um, produced all this writing and they've in many cases discovered new and interesting things. Okay, I'm talking about people who are college professors and, and publish, but I think it's very funny we call it research. Okay, um, as if we're, we're, we're curing cancer, we're building on a body of knowledge that is going to accomplish some quantifiable or, or definite or um, uh, delimited thing, and we're not doing that. I think for each person, each individual to read these works is great for that individual to come to know them, to come to learn by reading them once when you're younger and reading them when, you, when you're a little older and then reading them, I assume, when you're old. Well, I'll, I'll get there, hopefully. Um, that's important for the individual's mind and soul. That's a different question than should we be publishing articles about um, our so-called research on this stuff, which there needs to be a field in that, but I think it, that's much less important thing, much less important thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess the next question I have here, what, what advantages, the quantifiable advantages, do you think that learning about the history and origins of the world's languages from like Proto-Indo-European and understanding how all of these different languages changed into the ones that we use today. Why, why is that important? What benefit does it bring to humanity, even? So again, are you talking about for, for any, any old kid to learn how a language works, which I think is great for any old kid? Or are you saying 
further research into Proto-Indo-European is needed. Yeah, like why why is that further research into Proto-Indo-European? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm very far behind the the forefront of that research. That's I don't really care. <laughs> that's you know I I hope that's not too dismissive. I just think that th there's when you emphasize too much. Listen, I can I can produce as I say, research in this field, and that makes it a real field of inquiry, that's the wrong way of going about it. And it's, it's not just wrong, it's extremely limiting. Because in that case, an incredibly tiny number of people can either understand, sorry, can either contribute to or even understand what's going on. Yeah. Okay, whereas if you say, no, these are just, these are books that are amazing to read. And, you know, if you can learn the original language, really, really beautiful. Um, that's not only true and better, but also of much wider applicability. So many more people can access that. Um, kind of a fun question. If you could snap your fingers and be fluent in any modern language today, which one would you choose? Like, you don't have to have any experience. You could just instantly be fluent, understand it, and everything. I guess I would say Japanese, because really, I and mean, the answer kind of really is Italian, but it should be really easy for me to, to <laughs> learn Italian. Obviously, I'm not even close to that. I haven't spent time in Italy, but I shouldn't have to snap my fingers to get that, if that makes sense. Whereas, um, you know, it would take many, many a, a year, um, and I think a change in the way of thinking um, to learn something like Japanese and Japanese culture. How can you not be interested in it? So yeah. um, I'd say Japanese. And I guess... Uh, last question before, like the speed question round. Mm -hmm. um, what do you th what do you think about the future of global languages? Do you think that it'll just obviously that chart at the start of our textbook shows Proto Indo-European and then a huge branch of languages? But do you think that because of how interconnected we are now, that and the you can you have access to so many different cultures without land border, like just the existence of the internet and so much communication that that those branches will start to come together and we might sort of lose how many languages we have and go to, I mean, who can say, but like speaking one language as the people of earth, or do you think that it'll continue to keep branching out? I, I hope that's wrong. I think it'd be really boring if everybody spoke English, Chinese, and Spanish, you know, which is sort of speculation, I guess you're referring to. I, I hope that's wrong. I think that is wrong. I think the degree to which we're interconnected is, the exact way in which we are and the degree to which we are is often exaggerated. Um, it doesn't, when you teach your baby how to talk, it's not like you're staring at your iPhone, um, you're speaking the language you grew up speaking. I think it could have a really uh, deleterious effect on, on literature and indeed poetry for those cultures that still remember and still recite and think in poetry. That I think you could really get distracted by everything being in English or, or, or some other regionally dominant language, and that would be sad too. Um, but I no, I don't think everyone's gonna speak to one of two or three languages in 100 years or 200 years, no. Um, so I guess the, for the speed question round, um, if you had to pick, what is your favorite movie that you've seen? That I've seen? Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> not the favorite movie I've not seen. Um, the Third Man. Third Man. I haven't, yeah. I haven't heard of that. What's, what's it about? The Third Man is a movie made in bombed-out Vienna right after uh, World War II, obviously. Yeah. Um, I won't say more. That or maybe uh, Big Night. Okay. Yeah. Look it up. Is that Knight K-N-I-G-H-T? No. Okay, <laughs> Big Night. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's Stanley Tucci, and I can't remember. Um, 
This is a fun question. When you run out of toothpaste, do you squeeze the tube or do you roll the tube up to get all the toothpaste out? Do I squeeze or like roll both, right? Yeah, but like when like when you're running out, do you just do you roll it or do you leave I it see. flat? Okay, so I, I will say I squeeze for as long as that's feasible, but then obviously you have to follow up on that by rolling and squeezing. But yes, I see what you mean. No, I don't immediately start rolling. Okay. And then leave it on on the counter sort of slightly unrolled but still rolled up no i don't do that what's your go-to comfort food meal if you had to just pasta something like pasta. pasta yeah um what's your favorite place that you visited sicily sicily mm-hmm. uh if you had to pick what place that you haven't visited where would you go like a place that you want to visit the most Japan. Um, and then lastly, uh, what's your favorite board game? Now or over the course of my life? Uh, both. Well, now my, the only board game I play is uh, Candyland with my kids. So it, that has to count as my favorite. It's the only one I play. When I, the course of my life, probably Risk. Risk it was th- the most contentious, but also the most fun. Um, I grew up with four brothers, so we played a lot of Risk. We used to play Risk uh, every free period in lower and middle school. Uh-huh. Did you ever sign any treaties? We never finished the game because the, That's my <laughs> the free point. period, yeah. yeah, it was, exactly. yeah. We, we would like sign treaties at the end, but then we'd just restart. Then we'd always say we'd continue, but we never would. No, we never, right, that's right. So we would not finish, we'd be totally at to stop, and then we'd sign a treaty, uh, you know, apportioning out the world. Um, okay, so I guess to all the listeners, um, thank you for listening. Uh, I hope to have... Uh, one or two episodes, this episode and one with Mr. Sabri coming up, uh, published um, in the next week or so. And uh, thank you to you, Dr. Esposito, for coming on. This is a really interesting uh, conversation. Um, so I guess see everyone next time. Thanks, Larkin.